Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name is Mark Smith and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. This week we have one of the UK's leading music writers, Joe Muggs, speaking to DJ Spoonie, who's practically a walking encyclopedia for UK garage history. Although he's a student of music in general, Spoonie had a front row seat as Garage became a cultural phenomenon in the late 90s and early 2000s, both as a DJ in his own right and as part of the Dream Team. English listeners will also know him as a long-time BBC Radio 1 presenter, but he's also the driving force behind the Garage classical concept, which is on the cusp of a new performance at the iconic Royal Abbott Hall on October 24th. Whether you're new to UK Garage or a seasoned expert, Spoonie's perspective is as valuable as it is entertaining, offering insights on the rise, fall and enduring influence of this vital strain of UK dance music. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The exchange with DJ Spoonie is up next. in the RA offices and I am here with Spoonie of the Dream Team. Is the Dream Team still fully We're existing? still fully there. Yeah. We always will be. Uh, it's funny because I always introduce myself on a set, Spoonie from the Dream Team. So yeah, it just rolls off the tongue. So yeah, always will be. Even though I was Spoonie in my own right before the Dream Team, but the Dream Team was such a massive part of what I've done professionally personally to a degree as well that it always gets a mention it's definitely the most visible i mean that's you've been on national radio in that capacity so it's um, you know the most people will have uh, come in contact with you that way but yeah as you say you've got a you had a long history of music before that and most recently you are masterminding garage classical yeah it's um i feel a little bit guilty uh, taking on the the mastermind handle um because there's so many parts and elements to it i feel like using a football analogy which most probably won't be the 
the first and last time that happens in, in this conversation. I feel like the striker that's had the ball effectively rolled across him in the box and he puts it into the net. Um, but there have been so many elements to it before we get to the stage where we are going to be at the Royal Albert Hall. In 2017, Liverpool City Council put on a festival called the Liverpool International Music Festival, LIMPH for speed. And uh, they asked me to curate a, a set that would be performed with an orchestra. And it was there that I met Katie Chatburn prior to her setting up the Ignition Orchestra. At the time, there were young players from uh, the Royal Northern College of Music. That's how it started. So we've got a lot to thank uh, the great city of Liverpool for, obviously being a red. <laughs> I, I told you it wouldn't be the only time you heard about football on this conversation. Yeah. Um, for kind of, you know, for having the, the, the sort of vision to, to produce a, a show like that. And then we said, it's garage. It has to be done in Liverpool, in London. We sort of looked around, we couldn't find anywhere at first. Then we found a perfect place to do it in London, which was the Barbican. That went fantastically well. We sold out in 48 hours. We then did uh, Hammersmith to the end of last year. And it was always my dream, my desire. I know it's not the biggest venue in the country, but it's the best. And we are now doing it at the Royal Albert Hall. So, um, yes, yeah, phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, just just walking around there, seeing the pictures that are archived, um, the people that have performed there. It just, you know, even up till recently, one of my mum's favourite artists, Gladys Knight, was on the main stage and a couple of my friends went to the show and were sending me videos saying, you know, you're going to be on this stage. So, yeah, it kind of it brought it home. There, there's always going to be cynical people who say everyone's doing an orchestral project now and, you know... Um, Are you one of those people? I'm not one of those people, <laughs> I'm not one of those people at all. But, you know, there's there's Hacienda Classical, there's yep. Indie Classics Classical, there's Pete Tong Classical, whatever. Um, you know, have, have, you, have you sort of had to deal with accusations of being on a bandwagon? Of... You know what, I'm not, I'm not really that concerned in the sense of if, you know, David Rodigan's done... The, the reggae one and Pete Tong's and the house one and Hacienda. At the end of the day, does that mean that people who are into garage should be deprived of hearing garage music played in that way because reggae was played in that way and house music was played in that way? Um, there's room in the market. The desire is definitely there for people to come and attend. Um, it's gone down phenomenally well. The only real question is why we didn't do this years ago. Why didn't we do this in 2000 when we were on national radio but hey look nothing happens before it's time i think it's i think it's remarkable that 20 years later we're able to do and sell out a venue like the royal albert hall so well, that's testament and if anything garage deserves it uh, at least as much as any of the other genres because it's got those kind of deep roots in the soul and and proper songwriting garage was always yes. about songs yes. and, and um you know you wouldn't look twice at 70 soul bands pulling out a few orchestral instruments. No, not at all. It's, it's, um, and it's good that you've picked up on that because that's something that I say it's one of the fundamental reasons why I think garage music has stood the test of time and that is largely because it was, it was based on songs and traditional songwriting methods. And yes, it's slightly different when the MCs are introduced, but that was just another element of garage where I would say garage music was more about the songs and the MCs were a part of that as opposed to it being the other way around. Um, but that's what makes it a beautiful genre, to be honest with you, because there are so many different 
sounds within UK Garage that, that make it so beautiful. I mean, you could go from one end of the scale where you might have actually, quite ironically, um, Gabriel by Roy Davis Jr. Um, at one end, and then you might go to the other end and you you have 138 Trek by DJ Zinc or 21 Seconds by So Solid Crew. They are the same genre of music and they sound very different. Have you orchestrated one, <laughs> 138 Trek? We haven't. <laughs> we haven't, but we have done the other two. We have done the other two. Um, yeah, we have done an instrumental, but we've not done 138 Trek. Yeah. So, I mean, talking of this, this sole background, you know, it's an easy way to go back to your musical roots. Yep. Um, I'm assuming if your mum was really into Gladys Knight, you were kind of surrounded by music anyway, growing up, were you? Yeah, I was, um, yeah, I was, I was into music before I even realised I was into music. Mum's um, stuff, I, I mean, my mum went from, it was Gladys Knight, it was Sugar Minot, it was Bob Marley, it was James Brown. Being born in St. Kitts in the Caribbean, she was always playing Calypso and Soca music. So I had an appreciation for up-tempo music anyway. So when house music eventually found its way to me or I found my way to house music, I was able to absorb it quite naturally, I felt. But in between that and what my mum had introduced me to, my first loves of music, and I say they were genuine loves, were Madness and The Specials and Police and Blondie. Um, and then I started discovering the more soulful element for myself, Luther Vandross and Michael Jackson and... Prince around uh, 1987. Uh, yeah, it's funny that people um, kind of active rave was this amazing kind of coming together of black and white culture in, in Britain, but actually so many people from the white guys were into soul and Groove Rider was a punk. Yeah. You know, you were into New Wave. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was there already. It's like the, those, those... It was already there. And it was already there. And at a time, you know, I grew up in large in the 70s and 80s and there was a lot... There were was a lot of racial tension. However, music seemed to transcend that and you'd have, in a funny way, and it's something that I've often thought, how can skinheads who would chase black people down the road listen to reggae music? It was just one of those really, but I was I was too young. My, my, my hinterland, my understanding of the world wasn't big enough to, to work out the detail at the time. But it was something that I would go, it, it struck me as, very strange. So were you too young to go to like special shows when you were listening to them? Or? Yeah, I, I wasn't, I always, I played a lot of football um, growing up. So my spare time and weekends were largely traveling to playing and then traveling home from football and then doing my chores. That was the trade-off. If I was gonna go and play football, my mum <laughs> made me do my chores. But when it came to going out to concerts and stuff, I was at school maybe, fourth fifth year of secondary school and one of our teachers started taking me to i, I saw miles davis live and winter marcellus live well that's quite a christening <laughs> yeah yeah so that that was that was the level because i played trombone and uh, you know it was the brass and i think he took us there to me and my brothers to to be inspired by these amazing players um so that was you know i was going to those kind of shows more than going to to clubs and you were a Liverpool fan from very young. Yeah, from seven years old. How did that go down in East London? You know what, it's a funny thing because there were as many black people in Hackney in the 1970s supporting 
Liverpool as anyone else. Uh, I didn't grow up with my father who supported Tottenham. And I, I guess if I had, I would have supported Spurs like he did. But yeah, I just ended up supporting Liverpool for no for no rhyme or reason through the good times then lots of bad times and uh, 1st of June uh, 2019 was a very good time <laughs> and so what did you imagine that you it sounds like you were fairly disciplined like you know as as a kid and teenager I mean did you have your eyes on the prize with football or music or something else it's interesting that you're able to pick up that I was disciplined as a child I think I'd never minded the discipline my mum you know, there's my mum and me, three younger brothers. So we, she had to have a good handle on the household. Otherwise, you can see all hell breaking loose. I see some people struggling with one child. My mum had four of us and, you know, three of us are only two years apart. So, yeah, there was a lot of responsibility there growing up. But I, I, I didn't mind it at all because I realised quite young, young on that if I did what my mum wanted arts expected of me it gave me more time without supervision inverted commas to do what I wanted which was to just play as much football as I want to hang out with my friends go to the youth club and then get into music and spend as much time playing my music so it was just that perfect balance of doing your homework doing your chores keep mum off your back but you then applied the same discipline to to the things that you had fun with yeah because into the football yeah because it because it was a it was a formula that worked once it worked in one area and then you you kind of try it and test it in another area and it works again you say actually there's something here that you can do and I I, I guess I've applied that to everything in, in my life and it's served me well so what did you want to be when you grow up you know what I, I played it's really interesting because I played football to a decent standard but I don't think I ever had the burning desire and passion to be a footballer I don't even know if I was good enough but I definitely would have had the the mental capabilities to do it and the discipline to do it because the side of it that you don't get people think being a footballer and a top elite athlete is just about talent that for me that might only account for five or ten percent of it there's an awful lot including discipline which which are huge uh, with regards to going on to that level i was happy being hard working i had no idea of being famous i knew i didn't want to be poor and i knew i was going to have to work my way out of poorness so if that's even a word but that's what it was i was working my way from poorness and my first job, I worked in the job centre. I worked for the civil service uh, for seven years. I was totally happy doing that. And towards the end of that tenure, I decided that I'd like to give the DJ in a little bit of a little bit of a push. But that job was a little bit restrictive in my time to be filling out mailing lists and collecting records and filling out chart returns. So then I got myself another job where I was selling maintenance for. Apple Mac computers. This was in 1995. This is how long I've been working with uh, Apple Mac as it was then. And yeah, and then it just went from strength to strength to strength. I had five days a week job. Then I went down to four days a week to give myself more time to do the DJ. And it grew, it grew exponentially from that. Went down to three days. It grew again. And then within three months, I was full time DJing. I can remember, I've, I've spoken to more than one DJ who remember seeing you out at the weekend and then seeing you when they went to sign on. <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> so it's true. I mean, people don't, people don't believe it, but it's, uh, it's true. And I was, I was very happy. I was very happy. I just got to the stage where I thought to myself, if you are good at this and 
there is an aptitude for it. My music knowledge was was. I, I would say it was great in that it wasn't just my technical ability. I had a passion for producers, for sleeve notes, for songwriters, of, right across the board. Well, you uh, you you won mastermind uh, doing the doing the life and works of Ray Charles, yeah, right? Yes, yeah. obviously, like it's all in there. Yeah, yeah, it was in there. I mean, there's a lot of research that went into that, but that's <laughs> the kind of stuff that I enjoyed doing. So, researching for mastermind wasn't that hard for me because it was something that I just did naturally especially on such an amazing subject like uh ray charles again someone who my mum introduced me to so that was the discipline but it wasn't ever oh, i want to be a, a, a dj it wasn't until that last i was two years at the the, the company at 2020 the company that sold up on max and it was maybe the second year that i thought let's give this a push at least give yourself the best chance you possibly can and if it only lasts one year and you go back to doing a, a normal nine to five job. I was perfectly fine and happy with doing that. But like I said, that was over 20 years ago now. And it's, um, yeah, here we are. Well, we'll get to that in a sec. But through that period then when you were working and, you know, you, you were grown up, you're out of school. That was like peak rave years. Yes. So in 1988, so I was, I'd kind of come off of the back of maybe listening to a golden era of hip hop with... KRS-One, Big Daddy Kane, Stetsasonic, EPMD, iconic hip-hop albums, and still love that music. Then being introduced to House, kind of more tech-based House, Transmat was a big label, DJ International, another major label, Tyree Cooper, you know, the Jungle Brothers were doing a kind of hip-house fusion at the time. Acid Thunder was like one of my favourite records, and then you had 808 State, Pacific State, then you had the big big raves uh, energy genesis that were going on in the fields and you know the likes of you know, i remember seeing the flyers and fabio and groove ride and trevor fung and pete tong and carl cox all on all on these flyers uh, and then i was very much into i liked the music but because of me playing football i never used to i wasn't driving i never used to go to them but i used to listen to the music which was quite strange because you'd think that music was all about raving to but there was something in it that we all we did you have close friends who were kind of in that in that culture yeah a little bit of the older a little bit of the older lot um you know there's a guy there's a guy called wayne uh that was one of the one of the the promoters for i think it was genesis which were one of, the, one of the biggest events. Um, but I was too young to go, but I used to just love listening to the music and we'd get the mixtapes retrospectively. So I guess, did you know, you didn't know Mikey at the time then? Mikey didn't know Dream Mikey, Team, who no. of course was uh, making it big in the rave scene. Yeah, yeah, Mikey was... Um, so I first came across Mikey, again, not knowing Mikey, from his sound system days when he had uh, Funky Express. And at the time I was listening to the mixtapes of... You know, you had the reggae sounds, you had Saxon from South London and Unity from East London, which were like two of the biggest. Then you had the soul sound system. Mikey's was Funky Express. And I remember having Mike, they used to play more rear groove. Uh, Saxon and Unity were more reggae. And Saxon was where Tipperary came from. And Daddy Rusty was like my favourite. You know, then uh, Demon and Flinty from Unity. So th this was all kind Who of... Who then became Shut Up and Dance. And they became, yeah, Shut Up and Dance. And working, uh, working and with... DJ Hype also. Uh, was Hype was a part, Unity, yeah. part of that as well. So all of these guys, those, those Unity guys grew up very, very close to me. Shut Up and Dance, St. George Road, Prince George's Road, which was behind my primary school. Same thing for DJ Hype. 
DJ Ron, who was with TNT, who were another massive sound system from Hackney and Stone Newington at the time. He went to my primary school, still still friends with him. So, you know, there's a hotbed of music around there. Also on that estate, just, just in case hype, shut up and dance and DJ Ron are not enough. The legendary MC GQ grew up on my estate and Trevor Nelson grew up the other side of my primary school as well. So all of these people were into music. So... There was always, there was something to aim towards and to look towards. Um, I'd go around Ron's house as good as I thought I was. I'd go and listen to him and just go, you need to go and practice some more. You know, Trevor Nelson was living the dream. He worked in, he worked in the record shop and he was doing his DJ and he had Manhattan, Mad Hatter sound system. So yeah, everyone was, was doing their thing. Um, and MCGQ, even though he's now world famous as an MC, he was the first person that taught me to scratch. He used to DJ before he MC'd. So yeah, that was the, that was my sort of gang coming up the little run behind all of those. And, uh, yeah. So it was, it was really hip hop and rare groove that was, that was kind of unifying. And then, they all sort of went off into the rave world while you were playing football and yeah. just listening to the records at home. That's exactly what happened. And then, uh, like I said, I discovered house music. The time when you decided that you wanted to take DJing seriously kind of coincides with Garage really forming into its own little separate thing. Was it that part of the reason that drew you towards it? Was it were you kind of thinking, ah, oh, this is my gang, this is the thing that I could do? Yeah, because I'd, I'd, I'd kind of made the transition from sort of the tech housey sound into the soulful house sound. So it was Masters at Work and Smack Productions, Kerry Chandler, Sulfuric, um, they had, the, had a bump and a groove to the to the music. Again, a lot of songs, and then that was the the original sound of UK Garage Chicken and the Egg, which came first. Yeah. Um, but that was that was where where we found ourselves. And then I was kind of I was working, doing a pirate radio show, still getting a couple of gigs, and that is when I thought, right, you need to do it. Now's the time. The time is right. And then I just waited until I had sort of three months of solid bookings in the diary. And then that's when I made the plunge because then my motivation was just one one week's bookings go, you've got to fill it again. So you'd still just stay in. And they were happening where? Mainly around London? Or? All around London. I mean, I would do four or five gigs in London. In, in a weekend. So what, wait, this is 95, did you say? A little bit later than yeah. that. This okay. would have been sort of 96, 97 right. now. So. so it was like sort of 90, if I, like, you know, I'm, I'm saying this as someone who wasn't there in London at the time, but so 94, 95, this was like when it was the Sunday scene, right? There was lots of... It, yes. There was Pub things happening. Yeah, pub things, Old Kent Road, South East London. So um, by the time you started, it was getting into, like, clubs in the West End and yes, stuff. Yes, just just around just around that time and people i mean even though the gas club which is one of the most famous clubs associated with garage and you're not going to get much more central than leicester square but we were all happy not necessarily going right into town as long as the there was a good sound system people would go go wherever really but yeah the gas club is uh is legendary and then even bar rumba on um on shaftesbury avenue just under the trocadero so that was used every Saturday night by Bobby and Steve and uh, Mickey Zoo, who were at Kiss. They used to do the soulful Gary City there. And one, I, I did a few Gary City's events there, but when they had, they had a big birthday party and they were going to come out of 
by Rumba for one week and they went to the, the Coliseum to do their birthday bash. And then they did a night called Laws of the Underground. And that was maybe the first time that they had done a, a garage rave in that part of town, other than the gas club. That went phenomenally well. And then Camden Palace was the next one. And they say uh, the rest is history. So what was the what was the energy in the clubs like in 97, 96, 97? I mean, everyone talks about the era as a golden era and special. I mean, it really was, it really was electric. How different the world is now to then how the internet has completely changed the game you know we'd cut dub plates we'd have acetates which meant on a Thursday or a Friday you'd spend a few hours at JTS in Hackney or at Music House in Holloway Road getting your dub plates cut for the weekend where now you just press send and people have their tracks no one had a phone taking pictures and selfies and recording stuff in the venues uh, if we wanted to record it literally was plug a that machine in some this was actually before that's some of it but plug a that machine in and record the sets so if you weren't there that was the only way that you can access it so in some ways i think that because people were 100 percent focused on the present the dead and now they made the absolute most of it so for that reason it was special and it was it was unique and it's ironic because i wish that we had captured some of that just to see what it was like Sun City went and done this event and it was the biggest event in in the West End at the time, two and a half thousand people. That was off the scale. And there is there's footage of with a proper camera crew in there and you you go, Wow, times you've got six or seven people dancing about and you think, right, we 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 we're going times that by fifteen hundred and <laughs> do you know what I mean? Suddenly you see what's going on. And um, were you kind of aware at the time that, that here was another new UK sound that was being forged and that it had all these elements of the, the soul and the sound system culture and the hip hop and stuff that you'd all been in, grown up in? Yeah, I think we were, as, as music lovers and music people, were definitely aware. If I'd been a bit sharper and more astute from a business perspective, there's a lot more that we could have done, but I think we're always going to be able to say that in life. But as far as the the actual music and what made the music up, I knew this was, it was special because for me, it had so many different elements of everything in it. And it had, it had reggae from the bass lines and it had the house tempo, then it had the soulful songs sung by both men and women. It was what people called like a girly scene which meant that you know anywhere where you get lots of girls going naturally at the time you would get lots of guys following and the, it was really balanced it was very sexy because people people got dressed up people wanted to look their best they felt their best and you could just feel the sexiness in the atmosphere you know there was that i'm not even going to call it tension it was it was brewing it was smoldering at times the two-step thing when that came along so tina moore yeah. I guess. Was Which they stumbled across. Yeah. Um, but again, it, it inspired another subgenre of, of UK garage. One that we very much championed. A lot of people will say, oh, you know, the dream team and, and, and two step. We were as much into four, four as, as anyone else. Um, given all of our backgrounds, you know, Timmy was very much into his acid house and Mikey into the, into the rave with top buzz. And, at the time, I didn't know the guys, but I was very much, like I said, into my tech house as well. So we loved our 4-4, but 
the two-step sound was very familiar to us with our soulful and rare groove background. What was the what was the mix like? Was it mainly a black scene? I mean, I know there was quite a few fashion people would come along. Was it a black scene? I think a, a lot of the time when you have an underground scene, especially in London, it just gets associated or can quite often be associated with, with with being black. But I think if you look at a lot of the protagonists, a lot of the producers, MJ Cole is white, classically trained, Zed Bias, Robbie Craig, to, to name but a few. These are all, you know, massive people who, I don't know what UK Garage would have sounded like without them. LB, you know, another phenomenal producer, half of Groove Chronicles or Ghostman, as as at Ghost as he is now. So, I don't know. Maybe, maybe yes, but maybe no. It reminds me a lot of the kind of the soul scene in the mix of people you you get. Um, certainly, Garage Revival nights now and the few yep. Garage nights I went to back in the day. You know, it, it was it's that classic. British thing of everyone living on top of each other so it, it was hybrid in its nature yeah it was I, I, I just just thinking there that if what made it cross the, the the color boundary so to speak may have been the black element being the the soulful part that we all know and love and then the white bit being the the, the, the house the up tempo we're going to have a rave so rather than you know dancing from side to side you might be dancing up and down and then suddenly now you're dancing from side to side and up and down and then maybe what what garage was is depending on how you look at it yeah i mean that mid-90s period it was that scenes were so next door to each other literally across the road from each other a lot of the time you know people would go to one thing and then one thing and then the yep. next thing you know from a jungle party to a garage night to kind of like come down a bit they go to a techno night in the same weekend yeah um i mean obviously that still happens but I mean, a lot of a lot of garage djs um effectively started out in room two of a jungle rave and i, I played at roast one of the biggest jungle promoters uh thunder and joy was another big big event there was the rocket club on holloway road which part of the north london university now we played in room two and they they had the the jungle DJs uh, in room one. This is even before it was called drum and bass. Then Stush, Stush started out as a almost like a spin-off from Roast. They were very good friends with the promoters, and then they they took what was room two and made room two a slightly smaller room one. But um, one thing you mentioned, you know, the not having the business acumen at the time. Mm -hmm. A lot of the garage industry never kind of galvanised in the way that actually drum and bass did. Drum and bass kind of locked itself down and the labels just were like 15, 20, 30 releases, but not many garage labels I mean, managed that. Uh, what I'd say is compared to how successful UK Garage was, not many. Uh, there are still, you know, you know, Excel, the stuff that they did early doors, public demand, unbelievably prolific cut and play records tj cases is label there are i can point to locked on of course, locked on I, I can point on uh, to, to, to to some of these but considering that i think uk garage was the biggest underground scene because it had songs it could be played on the radio so in a it, especially in the uk in a way that even though jungle has been going longer I can go through, for every one mainstream jungle hit, 
there would be there might be 10 or 15 yeah. UK garage ones so in that sense UK garage was bigger and yes maybe we should have been A&Rs bigger A&Rs had bigger labels with bigger label deals um, but I think at the time everyone was so focused on the here and the now and doing what they were doing that we weren't thinking about business you're just thinking about making people dance and putting I mean we had our own label with DJs for life we had our own label but we just yeah it was more being able to put out records that we really liked as opposed to right we're gonna run off into the sunset and uh, buy a house in Ibiza with it <laughs> I wish we had though I really wish we had it's it's really strange and it, it remains one of the one of the great mysteries really why I thought it was going to become our R&B like you know this was now the British soulful dance based music radio friendly sound yeah and and you know Miss Teak and Craig David were kind of there they were actual pop stars yeah. and then it just kind of went around the millennium it just mm. kind of uh, fizzled yeah it's the uh, it's the question we're all sort of searching the answer for. I mean, we could focus on that, which will make you feel sad and disappointed, or we can actually focus on the brilliance that we achieved in that in that four or five years between say nineteen ninety eight and two thousand and three. We were still on on Radio One at two thousand and three doing the Sunday mornings, but yeah, it's a, it's a hard one. And what I also believe is that every every turn of the cycle, the next people learn a little bit more from the shortcomings and the failures of the of the previous in a way so in a way that the grime guys would look and go right we're gonna do this there i feel they're able to do that they're learning they would learn on the fly because of what went before them i think that garage most probably did more than on mast and jungle did and then and grime has done more than garage did and then drill might do more than grime did and then we see where we go in that in that cycle as underground musics yeah and it's i mean it's interesting to see how much garage actually gestated in the in the minds and hearts of the the kids the the people who were actually children when it came yeah. out um it, really, it was everywhere it was absolutely everywhere and on the radio so yeah. everyone whether you know their parents were in the inner cities or whether they were just listening to radio one driving to school heard it which is why the kids now i heard ez play got to get through this <laughs> at glastonbury and the place went insane and you know it's daniel bedifield but it's a good song and it's a it's Arthur artwork production yeah yeah i mean he was ez ez was just sending kids who weren't born when any of those records were played absolutely spare and the thing that really struck me actually recently was listening to zed bias's garage album that he did last year um and it's the first time he's ever done a garage album which was kind of funny but he's got mcs on it who are like way younger than most half yeah. of his early tracks and it's just really natural they it's like the two-step garage rhythm is written he, into them i mean zed is zed is brilliant and it doesn't surprise me what he he does he's he's made music across all different genres i've heard his garage stuff his soulful funky stuff his drum and bass stuff he's just brilliant with music and and we we actually i think our fourth or fifth release on on djs for life our label is, is a zed bias record this is before he even did neighborhood so we were we were right across and him and his and his brilliance without a, without a doubt um and again if you're a new mc you get exposed to 
brilliant production, you're going to work on it. It doesn't matter who done it. In fact, the one, the, the, even more than that, the AJ Tracy song, yep. it's all over the radio yep. now. Yep. Love it's it, so natural, even though, again, he was probably wasn't born when Neighbourhood came no, out, no. whatever, you know. No. It's, um, but Neither was but, Conductor, who produced that. There you go. That and but that style comes. It's in the blood, and because it's and good, it, and it is for KTB, and it is yep. for you know whoever else of of the younger generation. At the time, though, obviously you you mentioned grime, and there was the grime splitting in one way, and the carriage, uh, the dubstep splitting in the other. How did you guys feel? Did you feel like you were gonna just have to move move on and let it all go? Or did you kind of want to have it all as still part of the scene? You know what, it wasn't even, like we didn't have a conscious conversation decision about it, not even amongst, not even amongst ourselves into the sense of, because there will always be, just like everything, even though we like two-step and we like songs we never played every two-step record we didn't like every two-step record we didn't like every vocal garage record just like we didn't like every mc record but some we really did like some we absolutely battered and hammered so it wasn't as though we said we don't want to do that but it's just making sure you have the balance so our sets wouldn't have been just two-step our set wouldn't have been just vocal just like our sets wouldn't have been just mc based because what made garage so special was that that texture being able to go from black to white with a little bit of gray and make that whole journey so yeah we didn't want it to just be any one thing because i think what made the scene special the genre special is because it could have like i said earlier Gabriel at one end, one for eight trick at the other. At the time that, you know, it began to fragment, you were also doing non-specialist shows, the show yeah. on Radio 1, obviously yeah. you were there in a weekend just, morning. Yeah. So did you kind of think maybe that you that would be the direction you were going, that you would kind of be less less a specialist to be playing R&B and pop? And No, I, I, I've, always, I've always loved broadcasting um, and listen to i think part of the reason why i not chose that path but why i was able to go on that path i, I loved i loved doing my pirate radio but i presented my pirate radio show as though it was i was doing a drive time show on a legal station and i grew up listening to and loving chris tarrant and kenny everett and you know chris evans later on that i just loved how these guys presented even though they weren't so much into the music as i was into the music i wanted to be present my show like them but with the passion for the music so still have a bit of entertainment but where i concede a bit of the entertainment that's where the music passion will come from or that's where the music passion would be so that's what i always wanted to do so when it came to doing weekend breakfast on on radio one i felt that i had my roots were deep enough my passion and integrity in the genre were dear enough for people not to not to question my integrity but actually he still has the ability to go and play red hot chili peppers and missy elliott and jack johnson and still play a mj cole record as broadcasting you know you you went on and did TV stuff. You've done. Um, you work a lot in sports and stuff. So you've you kind of had a fairly broad portfolio. In those days, since the kind of um, peak of garage being in the mainstream, have you always solidly been a working club DJ? 
as well as doing all these other things. Absolutely. I'm a, so. you know, our label was called um, DJs for Life. And it's kind of, people said to me, they say, you know, when, when, it, when are you going to retire? When are you going to stop DJing? I'm like, it's never, ever something that I've considered because I just love playing music. I love making people dance. If, if I were to win the Euro Millions... I would most probably still DJ. People would still be able to book me to play at a party or a wedding or I might have a little bar by a sea somewhere. And I would still I would still DJ because I never started DJing for for money or financial gain. It's become a byproduct of of what I do. And yeah, it's it's afforded me a, a, a good a good life. Um I'm not able to retire, but I love I, I love doing what I do. Um, I'll always, I'll always find time to go out and play music. It's part of that coming from a sound system background because one of the things I've learned from researching the kind of the influence of sound system music in Britain is that it really encourages that intergenerational transfer of music because people are in it for life. You don't see, you don't see a sound system operator retiring. No, that you you do it for life. And people actually, are doing it when they're eighty. And the, the the thing about it is how long, how many badges can you have? How many years can you talk about events and different records and playing that record for the first time on your sound system? It's the greatness is bestowed on those that are in it for a long time. And one of the most influential pieces of art in my life would be a film called Babylon that came out in in nineteen eighty and just been sampled on many a jungle tune. Yeah, it has. But I think that it's the film and the story of the film and how important that sound system was to all of those characters. That it's it's uh, yeah, it's had an effect on me that is way deeper than anyone and anyone realizes. And I think it might have been maybe because I was able to watch a film that truly identified with me and my people and my life and the highs and the lows um you know lows to maybe being racially abused on the, an estate that you live and the highs of being going to a, a party a christening uh, engagement on a bus and just messing about with your friends and all of those you know the little nuances it was so well researched because like as a, as a, as a kid growing up in hackney i was like yeah this is this is us in the time since those kind of peak garage years, um, have there been moments in the music scene that have kind of really grabbed you again? Because, you know, you, you've stuck with house and garage, essentially. Yeah. Um, have you kind of, have there been, a, we've had things like UK Funky having its its moment. If you've had this thing of like tech house overwhelming huge swathes of the scene. Um, have there, have you, were there any that particularly were like, oh, this is like... This has grabbed me. Not in a sense of the grab my attention in that. Oh, this is this is nice, and I really like this. And I I think UK funky. It's so close to so many elements of garage that I feel that sometimes people want to just invent a new genre for inventing a new genre's sake. Whereas if you take a sound of a genre and keep making loads of it it doesn't become in my opinion a new genre it's just more of that sound from that genre listen but there's a lot of uk funky that i, that I absolutely absolutely love and it's interesting that some of it is just house music 
effectively like UK Garage is just a kind of it's a brand of, of house music. So yeah. What do you make of Northern Bassline? Because that kind of took Garage and turbocharged it. Yeah, it did. I, I, I feel the UK funky is closer to what I know sound wise and Garage than that that sort of the, that bass that total bass where because UK funky t still has its roots in soul and groove where that bass line stuff doesn't it's more about you know that instant reaction and how loud can you make how loud can you make the bass line whereas UK funky I can get up on a Sunday morning put it on in the house and be cool to it where that the bass stuff unless I was out clubbing I most probably wouldn't listen to it not as much as I would other genres anyway. And um, what what turns you on musically outside of the club stuff that you play now? I mean, you know, you mentioned Drill and the potential that it's got and, you know, there's a lot of excitement around what's happening with, with black music in, in Britain at the moment. I, I like music with a conscious element to it, a positive element to it. So not so much of the Drill then? <laughs> well, it, it depends on what the message is in that particular record and i'm not gonna i know enough about music and i've been on the receiving end enough to say i'm not gonna tar every drill record producer mc with the same brush because it's just be too simplistic and coming from someone like me we you know the gamekeeper turning poacher i would this this <laughs> i'm not gonna do that um but something that is consistent in 99% of the music that I listen to will be a a positive message or and even if it's a message that has sad undertones like the blues were and I start listening to Ray Charles which again and the great protagonist of, of blues music that there is a positive message that's coming out of it it's never talking about harming my neighbour in any way shape or form and even though I mean, you listen to Marvin Gaye, depending on who you are, you'd say, well, that's quite negative, where it's not actually shedding light on the negativity, which is negative to some people because they're the perpetrators of the set, of said negativity. Bob Marley falls into that bracket as well. He most probably would have been investigated by the FBI at some point and seen as national security because this guy's telling everyone what we're doing. Well, yeah, that doesn't mean he's wrong, surely. Um, so, yeah, I'm not going to turn around and say that uh, all drill is bad there's some of it that's some of it that's very good just like I'm not going to say every garage record's uh, very good and then there's some tracks that I don't even know you know what are they they may be just UK rap you know Toddler T's um, Striker Pose the new thing that he's done with Young T and Bugsy before that I Carumba is one of my biggest records that I play that I play in Ibiza I love Stormzy I adore Stormzy and what he does and what he stands for and what he believes in how he's conducted himself, not just behind the microphone, but he's accepted the responsibility of his position. And even though I really check for him on that basis, I think it makes me appreciate his music even more. And then Crown, his, his, his latest single is, is phenomenal. And 
yeah, I just want to congratulate him and MJ Cole. And I forgot the other guy that works on it, the songwriter. But yeah, MJ. The, the, uh, watching Stormzy at Glastonbury this year um, on the telly, I sort of didn't manage to go yeah. and bake myself in a field. Yeah. But um, what really struck me is how much he pays tribute to all of that lineage of, of British music that we've been talking about. You know, he even name checks to Bass Too Dark. You know, it's little tiny things like that. that he's he's shouting back to Jungle. I remember meeting Congo Natty and Congo Natty said when he met Stormzy, there was kind of mutual paying of respect because he knows where it's yeah. all come from. Yeah. Yeah, Congo Natty. I mean, again, and I bought my first ever Techniques turntable off of him when he was in Beat Freak, when he had his, his sound system, because uh, DJ Ron was his, was his DJ. So, yeah, yeah, Congo, I know very, very, very well. I used to drive home, actually. He'll tell you himself. <laughs> I'd leave the job centre in Shoreditch where I worked. And he lived in he lived in Stamford Hill at the time, and I'd sometimes just go and knock on his door and just chill in his house. And at this time, he was making hit records and was on top of the pops and stuff like that. But yeah, he, he, going back to to Stormzy, the greatest moment of his professional career, and he stopped the music, went out and stood in the middle of the crowd and name checked every grime drill MC, and I was just. I think I was as much blown away by that, his ability to recall and his desire to give credit to everyone at his greatest moment. I, I was just, you know, this is, that for me is, is greatness um, because what he's doing is special anyway. He did not have to do that and no one would have said anything negative about him for not doing that. But he chose his greatest moment when the biggest light was on him to share it with everybody and I, it, to do that is it's remarkable in in, in a day and age when people are all about likes and filters he he turned around and said no use lot can have this it's it's one of those things that that um does give you optimism and and i think that that thing you said about not knowing even whether current big tracks are hip-hop dancehall west african garage there's a big garage influence obviously yep. now is one of the things that makes it super exciting um like like it's one of those it feels like one of those golden ages for british pop at the moment yep. exactly as it did in in the garage years yep. in fact um are you are you feeling optimistic then about british music making and underground music yeah I, and bearing in mind that I, I think this was one of the things that made garage so special because it was for us, by us, for once, we weren't looking to America um, to see what's great and to get any acceptance. It was, no, the the, the superstars and the heroes are here. Matt Jam Lamont, Carl Tuffinoff Brown, Norris Boss Windross, Master Steps, MJ Cole, Zed Bias. They were, they were, they were us. We weren't trying to be accepted or appreciated by anyone else. We, we had our market. We loved our market. Our market loved us, and and we and we just got on with it. So you know we have been massive supporters of UK music because it was it was us. And in a way, I felt and still do feel a little bit sorry for some of the big UK rap artists that came even before Garage um, and that were around at that time because they were rapping and they were always going to be compared with their US counterparts and in some ways when the MCs started with Garage they were able to have bigger careers have a greater reputation than the actual 
UK rap rappers. So, you know, your likes of Rodney P and Black Twang. I mean, Derek B, who came before both, he, he had a big career as well. But, you know, those guys who were actual British rappers, because they were always going to be compared with Big Daddy Kane and yeah. Notorious B.I.G. and but, but Gunshot, Hijack, Cookie Crew, yep. all of those were amazing, amazing artists who were actually blowing up big big parties at the they, time. They, the they were, but what I mean is as, as artists, you know, they didn't go on and have Oh, of course, no. I mean, whether it was the, whether albums, it was the industry yeah. or whether it was the, the we well, weren't the culturally just, ready. Or, well, the support, I, I, I don't think the support for them was there as much as the the UK-based, UK garage-based MCs. So, like I said, you know, these guys, Hijack, they, they were around before I was DJing. But who was gonna be playing? Who was gonna be playing and supporting their music? There wasn't really a platform for it. And the shows that were there, where Tim Westwood might have been playing rap, he was not playing and supporting that music as much as he could have and should have. And maybe that's a conversation that you'd have with those particular rappers and Tim Westwood himself. But I'll say that when it comes down to Garage, that Garage in some ways has done. And it's not the first time I'm saying this, but in some ways, Garage has done more for drill and UK rap than rap did for UK rap because of the lineage that you spoke about. You know, from Garage into Grime into into drill, it that has it has been really clear how Wiley and Skepta were into were Garage, and then they went into to Grime and gigs has then come into to grime and then Stormzy's come into grime chipmunk was you know very young but he was just on the cusp of of garage and grime and these guys then had grime and then grime then became drill and that is how that has worked out one day i think it, it needs to be properly told the story of how those 80s sound systems of yeah, rap attack and hype and rap attack, man. Congo Natty and 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 Shut Up and Dance and and Soul to Soul and all those people laid the groundwork for what's happening now because you know it was all of you guys who'd sort of come out of hip hop into Raven House and all of those things really built the the infrastructure that's there now. I think we need to, we'd either need to have a, a roundtable discussion with a moderator or someone could then sit down and almost do a family tree of of the music and it would be brilliant to to look at that and and if i had more time it'd be the kind of thing that i would take on as a as a project because i think looking back it it will be brilliant to look at it and you could then clearly see some of the stuff that i'm saying of, or at least through my eyes um of, of how i've seen it how i've seen it pan out well, there's, there's so much more than we're going to get into this interview. But, um, I mean, you're going to be celebrating that history at the Albert Hall. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it. <laughs> yeah, it's gone, it's come full circle. I mean, we've gone from South East London having 200 people, 150 people in a venue on a Sunday morning afternoon, because that's the only place you can do it, to now performing our music at arguably one of the world's greatest venues and I'm and calling it one of the world's great music venues I don't think is overstating it by any stretch of the imagination I might actually be understating it saying it's one of them so for us to um to be doing our our thing on that stage is uh yeah it's, it's remarkable really um, and, and like I said it's so many 
moving parts have, have come together um, and I'm, I actually get to stand there and, uh, and talk about it, which is a, a phenomenal honour, really. I'm um, very humbled by it. I feel really fortunate that I'm able to do it, not just because it's me, but because of the time after all of this time that we've been playing this music to be able to go on stage at the Royal Albert Hall and, and, and do that. Awesome. Well, enjoy it. I'm sure you will. <laughs> <laughs> do my best. And thank you very much, Spini. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. Searching for. We need to have a